Welcome back to this week's episode of the Seatown Podcast, where Seattle business owners, entrepreneurs, and community leaders are invited on to share their stories with us. If you've been listening to this podcast, you already know that the reason I started it was to help support the community by sharing the stories of local businesses and community leaders, especially West Seattle, since this is where I live, it's where I work. I already have some great relationships with some of the business owners in this area. Uh, but as we're heading into the holiday season here in December, I really wanted to highlight some of the great local nonprofit groups that are doing uh, some really great work. And so that will be our focus in December. Hopefully these episodes featuring the nonprofit groups will help to uh, make an impression and encourage listeners to get involved in one of these organizations to help those in our community that may not be experiencing the same blessings that we are this Christmas season. Uh, I think that t- together we can make an even larger impact for the community and the individuals that these nonprofit organizations serve. Uh, today I'm joined by Chris Lingler, who's the Executive Director of West Seattle Helpline, a community-based organization that provides emergency services to local families and individuals to pre- prevent homelessness and other detrimental poverty-related outcomes. Uh, he's also the Vice President of the Board of Directors at the Del Ridge Neighborhoods Development Association, one of the largest affordable housing providers in West Seattle. Uh, are, are there any gaps that, uh, that you'd like to fill in f- uh, from the introduction? Just a little background on yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can talk a little bit about sort of how I got to those places in in a nutshell. Um, I've lived in West Seattle for the past couple of years. Before that, I spent two years on the north end of Seattle while I was doing graduate school at the University of Washington at the the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. Um, Originally from Portland, Oregon, and and bounced around the country before that for a combination of work and school opportunities that managed to land me with an interest in homelessness and housing and other sort of racial and social justice aspects of of nonprofit and and public policy work. Okay, great. So, I mean, it sounds like you obviously have kind of a a heart and a passion for serving the community and uh, and those who are in need. Uh, Maybe you could tell us a little more about that, like what what kind of, I don't know, developed that in you and and how you got into the specific field. Uh, I think we could go all the way back or we could go part way back. I think all the way back in a nutshell, um, I, I grew up with a, uh, a couple of parents who, who look at the world and the issues of the world pretty differently. Um, my mom um, spent time when she was younger um, teaching choir classes and, and working with kids and doing a lot of things that were very um, empathic and very compassionate work with young people um, and that defines a lot of the way that she operates you know she wears her heart on her sleeve and she's really just one of the most caring human beings that I've ever gotten to meet which is great because she's my mom yeah. um, my my dad uh, was a bit of an entrepreneur he was one of the founders of a company called mentor graphics located in Portland that does um, a variety of things that I won't be able to talk about enough specificity on, uh, but in terms of creating microprocessors and some other, um, they were sort of early in the tech boom, they were creating some of the uh, materials used in computers as they were really hitting their peak in terms of development uh, in, that, in that 80s, 90s area. Okay. Um, so he, he looks at things very systemically. He looks at um, how, how the pieces of organizations are moving together, how patterns and people tend to um, connect. And so some of the, the passion for the issues comes from the fact that I would hear him talk about the broader processes and the economic aspects of um, you know, where, where people run into trouble and why different social issues exist. Um, and I, on the flip side, would hear my mom's conversations about the way that she saw it affecting individual people. and. Um, I think a lot of where I am today and the kind of work I'm doing now is the intersection of the individual personal struggle and strife and then looking at the systems around it that created it. Okay. That sounds like a pretty unique 
household to grow up in, you know, specifically with the, the different perspectives and how I could see them being kind of complementary. Yeah, a little um, bit of yin and yang in the household as I was growing up. Sure. Um, and then how did you, I guess, specifically come to be at uh, the Westdale Helpline? So I had been working in a couple of different arenas here in Seattle. Um, I came here for the graduate program at UW. Uh, I've been focusing on nonprofit management and public policy. Uh, and had worked in political campaigns while I was doing graduate school. I worked in Senator Patty Murray's office um, as a part of a graduate internship while I was doing that work. Mm -hmm. So I've been very focused on the public se sector and the political aspects, um, but wanting to try to connect those things back to community and back to real people mm -hmm. on the ground. Uh, I moved over here as I was finishing up those studies and one of the uh, most serendipitous things that I think maybe has ever happened is that right after I moved over here, I'd gotten the word out to friends, I'm looking for work, I'd like something where I can really connect with folks um, and sort of see some of the impact that I'm creating, but also have a chance to play into those systemic factors, you know, do some advocacy work, um, sure. organize with other community members around these issues. And uh, a colleague who's also hunting for jobs found a listing at a place called the West Seattle Helpline. She knew nothing about it. She said, hey, you just moved to West Seattle. This kind of sounds like something you'd like. As it turned out, when I contacted them, reached out and said, I'm interested in this opportunity. Here's my background. Mm -hmm. It happened to be a good fit. And 18, 19 months later, here we are. Um, but it was, it was a really wonderful intersection of you know, trying to be there for folks when they need us but not after things have gotten bad, right? So there was a systemic aspect to being preventive, getting there earlier, um, being able to help folks before they're in a really rough spot. Um, and, and that's the systemic side. That's my dad talking, right? That's sure. the, how do, how do we make this more efficient, make it run better for people? Sure. But at the same time, get no folk stories and sit down with them in my office and hear what's going on and how we can help. Sure. I mean, that's what seems like it's so unique about the West Seattle Helpline is that the, I mean, there's plenty of, of nonprofits and charities obviously serving, you know, families in need, but it's already after they're in poverty or they have a need or there's mm -hmm. been catastrophe, you know. Yeah. Sounds like uh, you guys really serve a real practical uh, niche of helping people when, you know, they're on the, the brink of, you know, a situation that could lead them down that road and be yeah. able to help them before they get there. Yeah, we've got a little bit more. I'm, 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 a, I'm a huge fan of those organizations that are there for folks once things have gotten rough because we don't have a perfect social safety net. Yeah. And we do have folks that fall through and they need things, but um, need things in those, in those really, and I don't want to say desperate moments necessarily, but in some cases they are. Uh, the helpline is designed to be a little further upstream. And the idea is, is that if we can get to folks before things get rough and also before they're qualified for uh, you know, their eligibility criteria that certain organizations or public benefits have where your income needs to be below a certain level sure. and you need to or you need to have spent at least a night outside to qualify for a particular homeless shelter or transitional housing program. I understand those requirements, but we also want to be able to see if we can't get there before folks get to that place of qualifying for more comprehensive um, high-level services because we can get there if we can get there earlier we're preventing them a lot of strife we're preventing them a lot of suffering sure. um, it makes it easier to remedy situations um, and often more cost-effective too which sure. is uh, as somebody who spent a lot of time in budgeting and finance and um, other other coursework and like that um, I, I really I really value the opportunity to leverage as much impact per dollar sure. as we can sure 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, it and also on a very practical level, it helps to not additionally burden a system that's already can't handle the, the need. You know. Yeah, that's right. And and the need is, is certainly greater than, than all of us put together are, are being able to tackle right now. So each time we can squeeze that dollar further or we can you know, leverage more out of that hour of a staff member's time because it doesn't take as much time, as much funding to help someone get back to where they're trying to be. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of the programs, the transitional housing, the food banks um, that we work really closely with, um, employment assistance programs, they're all trying to get folks back into a path they want to be on. Yeah. Um, and if ours can be just a slight turn from the direction they were going, what tends to be called diversion services in the nonprofit world now, if we can just do a small diversion, um, make a quick pivot back towards the right kind of path before someone gets into a tough spot because because their circumstances were rough or they hit a hardship they weren't didn't couldn't see coming. Um, I like that model. I like the idea of making that little adjustment and keeping people on their path. Sure. That's awesome. Um, so how long have you been at West Seattle Helpline now? I'm coming up on, I'm going to hit two years in, in March, so I'm at about 19 months right now. Okay. It's just over a year and a half. Um, and at the time that I started, it was I was the only staff member um, when I was hired. Uh, the, the organization's been around for quite a long time, but uh, the board really sought to kind of change directions because... Um, up until I started as the executive director, there was only a part-time ED okay. uh, and volunteers. Uh, my, the hiring decision to make it a full-time position, uh, and I think part of the reason why where I was coming from and what they were looking for came together and aligned is I came in saying, let's build this thing up because there's a lot more potential here. And they said, it's time for us to scale this up and really meet the need in a more comprehensive way. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've lived here in West Seattle for... Eight, eight years now, so I mean, not not a huge amount of time, but I mean it's only been the last couple of years that uh, was the helpline even you know gotten on my radar as far as you know more visible uh, resource for the community. So yeah, well we're we're working on getting on that radar, and and part of what we've been doing in those last couple of years is trying to move from sort of this grassroots, keeping our head above water, mm-hmm. keeping the doors open, focus, which you know a lot of a lot of folks in the nonprofit world are strapped for resources, understaffed, um, in a position where we're having to put the energy in just to keep going. Um, We've been really focusing, when you're doing that, it's really hard to also do an effective job marketing and communicating to everybody what you're doing. Because that in itself is a whole another department that you don't have staff in. Um, So in between client meetings, I would try to put out a tweet or a Facebook post to share out to the world, but there's only so much of that that you can do before you're sacrificing raising the funds you need to go or, or meeting with your clients. So we've been making a conscious effort to build out that communications and marketing strategy because we want to make sure everybody who needs us knows. We want to make sure everybody who wants to support a local community organization knows or volunteer knows that we're here and we're for this neighborhood and this right. community. Right. What, is, what has been the, the most effective efforts, I guess, in raising that visibility? I mean, I... I you know, was involved in the about a month ago. Yeah, the you know the, the West Hill Helpline Gala mm-hmm. benefit dinner, which was which was awesome. Thanks um, again for coming. Yeah, no, it was a great experience, and I got to hear more obviously from you and other people uh, about the you know the tangible on the ground stuff that uh, that the helpline's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that made me a fan. You know, kind of got me on on board, made me an evangelist. Um, Glad to hear that. You know, are those types of events you know typically what raise awareness, or are there other things throughout the year that that do it, or 
those events certainly help. I mean, anytime you get people in a room who have decided that they're willing to spend a Friday night, as you were, mm -hmm. to, to come learn about a cause and learn about uh, an organization's work, um, you have a captive audience. And so that's, that's certainly helpful. I think for us, uh, one thing that has been a theme throughout my time there, as we've been trying to take that, make that transition from that grassroots under-resourced org to a more professionalized and a more impactful organization, mm -hmm. um, is trying to find where all the low-hanging fruit is that we haven't been picking. And for us, there were a handful of things where we simply hadn't invested that little extra bit of energy and, and, and funding capacity um, in things like taking an hour and creating a social media strategy. Sure. Previously, the strategy was whatever we kind of thought of as we went, we'll share that. Um, that's not that hard to do at a 101 level. Now, being advanced and being sophisticated and getting to the point where we're trending on Twitter is a few levels above where we are and where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. But um, we could at least be active enough to get a little bit of um, a little bit of a presence built out. So things like that, tuning up the website so that it's easy to find out who we are if somebody wants to know. Um, when I started, the website had different fonts, typos. It had a bunch of stuff going on that just sure. if you don't have an IT person, if you don't have a web manager, things will fall through the cracks. Um, we spent a lot of time tuning those up and then partnering with folks who have bigger megaphones, bigger podiums than we do. Um, because we're, as I said, a small organization that's been around a long time, but we don't have a massive media infrastructure. Um, but we live in a community that has the, one of the biggest neighborhood blogs in the country. Right. The West Seattle Blog has been an incredible partner, as has the West Seattle Herald. Um, both really focused on our neighborhood, which helps because we are too, right. so that aligns nicely. The Seattle Times might not be writing about us a lot because they're looking at whole city issues. Mm -hmm. But um, we've reached out to the blog when we've had an event or when we've had a really compelling story, when we've had a need where we needed to ask the community to pitch in like we did this summer when the... Rent, rising rents have sort of hit crisis levels and we're really starting to see that turn into more folks come and ask for help paying rent bills that they can't afford to pay yeah. um, when they're in sort of dire circumstances. So those those couple of things and, and also just being out in the community, being present, being, whether it's at our events or at other events, mm -hmm. you know, being at Summerfest in West Seattle, the sure. big summer festival. Yep. Being present and having those couple of partnerships where we can have somebody else who can send it out more broadly than our mailing list allows yeah. have, have really helped make a lot of difference and hopefully we're just getting started. Sure. Well, hopefully I can help in that uh, as I grow my audience. <laughs> right, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm expecting yeah. all of your four million listeners to you know find our website and oh, yeah, definitely. make yep. a donation, come get involved, it'd be great. Yep, I see a huge spike after this post. So. I can only, I, that's my <laughs> expectation, that's why I'm here. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I mean, having having been at the West Seattle Helpline for for a couple years now, uh, what do you what do you love most about about being there? About both your job uh, and the the helpline, the organization itself. Uh, the the thing that it, it's it's hard to pin a thing down. I I love the folks we get to connect with, and we get to connect with you know between donors, volunteers, supporters, um, part community partners, uh, and the folks that we're serving. Uh, everybody is West Seattle or White Center, everybody's in and around this community, and this community is really tight-knit. Um, and so getting to connect with all kinds of people on who are in all kinds of circumstances, come from all kinds of places, is wonderful. I'll say the thing, I think I probably love that the most. The thing that gets me most excited is the potential. Because that drew me to the opportunity, it drew me to the organization. Uh, because we are 
in a position where there's so much more we could do. I mean, we've we've picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit now. We're we're almost having to look at higher branches, right? And that's an exciting phase because it means that we've tuned up and we're mostly firing on all cylinders. And now we look at what's up there and what's bigger and what we could do that sure. um, would expand that impact, um, not just to more people, but make it more profound for each person we work with. Um, provide more people opportunities to plug in and help their own community, which even though our services, our programs are the main way we help, um, giving folks in the community a chance to connect with their neighbors and have an impact is good for them too, right? Yeah. That's, it's uplifting, it's, you know, it's, it's, for some it's a spiritual connection to, to making the world better. Um, it, for high school students, it's fulfilling service hours, but then giving them some world perspective about the kinds of challenges that our neighborhood, our region face. So um, the potential is really exciting. We're now, we've grown from one staff member, me when I started, to four people now who are on the staff, three full-time, one part-time. And that's obviously a huge difference for us. And we're not done growing. Um, there's more work that the community, you know, there are needs in the community that aren't being met. Uh, and the nature of the helpline has been to look for what those needs are that aren't being fulfilled and to see if we can either find somebody that can fulfill it, a partner in the community that's out there that we just need to help people find. Yep. And if not, we try to fill it. We add that program, we create that new service. Uh, and we aren't even close to tapping into all the potential. And so each day I come into work, uh, it's not just keeping it going, it's looking at what's next. Sure. And, and that, you know, I love the people first, but the excitement comes into what we can do for all of the people across all of the, different kinds of folks we connect with. Okay. Uh, where do you foresee uh, the helpline as far as the, the timeline of, of potential? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you were at one place when you started, you know, you feel like you're at a good place, but there's obviously tons of potential left. You know, where do you see the mm -hmm. helpline going? Uh, we're, we're in a space where I think that in the next, in the next two to three years, we're not going to be done, but we're probably going to get to that point where um, we've grown out really what the core is and what the core can be, right? What our core staff, core programs, um, obviously we'll continue to adapt as the community adapts and the needs change, but uh, we're probably at a point where what we could do is we're gonna dig really deep into outreach soon. Um, and doing that is going to enable us to make sure that everyone in the community who could ever benefit from our services or is looking for um, an org like us they want to support or volunteer at knows about us uh, because right now I think we're doing well connecting to and helping folks that do know about us or find us through normal channels but normal channels aren't accessible and easy for everybody. Sure. Uh, once we get that outreach out um, we want to maintain our 100% fulfillment which is something that we've been very excited to say that for the last year we haven't been turning anyone away we've been able to help at least a little bit for everybody who requests rent utility assistance bus tickets, clothing, um, who, who meet our couple of little eligibility criteria. Uh, the next step is making sure everyone knows, which means we'll need more funds for when more folks are contacting us because they know about us. Um, we'll need more bus, bus tickets, which we actually are, are on, on track to get for next year and the years following. We've got a higher allocation coming, so that's great. Uh, and our clothing bank, we're in the works on hopefully finding a new site where we can expand it I and mean, probably by factor of three four five right now we're in a small space and in that small space this year alone we've distributed one hundred seventeen thousand dollars worth of clothing in a program that's entirely volunteer run yeah um we we check in on it once in a while but we volunteers show up and open the doors and set up the store and help people shop so 
if we can get that to a bigger space where it can be open more hours. In the next two to three years, I think we can probably be serving probably three to four times as many people as we're helping now mm -hmm. um, who need it, who are out there that we don't know about or don't know about us. Sure. Uh, focus number one is being there for them, right? We're, our slogan is neighbors helping neighbors, and we want to make sure that not a single one of our neighbors ends up in a spot where the helpline could have been there for them, but for one reason or another, we didn't connect. Yeah. So that's a big expansion piece. We certainly have some internal goals about what we want to do in terms of staffing, uh, making sure that we've got um, all the all the right people covering all the right needs. You know, right now by virtue of we have four people and we're doing so much better. But I'm still, in addition to being the executive director, I'm the director of HR. Um, I'm the admin professional. I'm the IT guy, right? Because we're not going to hire those folks yet. Right now we have program staff, operations staff, um, and development communications. Uh, we're on our way, but we're going to get to that point where we're fully fleshed out. And I think two to three years is a, a reasonable timeline for all that growth, which as you can tell, this is where the excitement kicks in because we are, we are not going to be the same organization a month from now or two months from now that we were a month ago. Sure. Uh, I mean, on that note, when you first came up, came aboard full time, what was the biggest challenges then and what do you, what do you face right now as the biggest challenges? How much time do you have for this question? Because <laughs> I could go on for a bit. Yeah. Um, the single biggest challenge, so once I got my bearings, once I, you know, there was an interim executive director who was a previous executive director who came back to help the organization uh, in the gap between the, my predecessor uh, and when I started. Once I got the training and got my bearings about what we do and how we do it, mm -hmm. uh, the single biggest challenge right off the bat was having so many different kinds of tasks and needs on any given day and trying to have enough time or energy to focus on any one of them to do them well while spinning around to catch the next ball that was in the air. Um, you know, it was an intense juggle. Yeah. And it made it so that I would go from meeting with a client who was going through circumstances that, you know, I've worked in social services fields for a while, I've worked with folks who are homeless, and I, but some of these stories you still can't fathom unless you've experienced them. Yeah. Um, the resiliency that people are, are that show through this and the resourcefulness and so I, I love getting to connect with those folks and learn those stories it's hard but it, it's it's certainly great and it's worth it um, and I love having the impact but going from that to immediately transitioning into having to make a fundraising call or to plan a, a part of our event where I had to talk to the caterer about food options at the gala coming up. Um, and then right back to a client meeting and then back to a call with a landlord that doesn't want to accept a rent pledge and I've got to convince them in the next 20 minutes or they're going to call the sheriff. <laughs> having to pivot so fast between so many things was certainly the biggest challenge, which relates to why hiring staff and building out that capacity has been really critical. Sure. Um, so that certainly comes to the top of mind. Uh, the other one is, in an organization like ours, we've been around a long time and among other social service providers, you know, the West Seattle Food Bank, the White Center Food Bank, Westside Baby, Southwest Youth and Family Services. Uh, we have a lot of wonderful organizations in the neighborhood. We actually have quite a few nonprofits um, for the, the size and, and, and uh, location of our neighborhood. Uh, they know about us, but I didn't have close relationships with any of them. And the only way that we all get this work done well, or even adequately, is by working together. Sure. Um, none of us, none of these organizations, even those that are, are bigger and have been around a longer time, you know, the YWCA, YMCA, um, we have to be in collaboration with other organizations around us. And so as I reached out to try to build those partnerships, 
that takes time and energy. It's well worth the return on investment to get services going where we can help with a rent pledge, but St. Vincent de Paul, one of our closest partners, helps with the utility bill that's also out there for somebody who just lost a job mm -hmm. so that they stay in their home, but they don't have the water shut off where they're living. Uh, those kind of partnerships are invaluable, but finding the time and the energy and the space to sit down, have that conversation and plan it while I've got 25 things on fire back at the office sure. and I've got five clients coming in this afternoon in the space of an hour and I need to help them all in that hour. Uh, getting, getting myself out there to build those partnerships that I knew I needed to get this thing turned around yep. while all that was going on, that certainly was the biggest hurdle. Mm -hmm. um, the, the learning lesson was sometimes a 40-hour week isn't a 40-hour week. And if you don't prioritize well, it all falls apart real fast. Yep. So there was a trial by fire aspect to those, those first several months, especially. Sure. Uh, on that point, um, I mean, as the executive director and, and you know, you guys were running, obviously you were the first kind of full-time staff. Now you guys have, have four uh, staff. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, are you still kind of the one answering phones and stuff? Are there volunteers doing that while you're able to kind of do the bigger organizational growth? stuff or I guess what's a regular regular workday look like for you yeah we're we are getting to the point where um, we're starting to get more specialized uh, each member of our team and our volunteers uh, all have more defined roles because there aren't so many things moving at once it's allowing for you know ju just that basic scalability and that basic specialization to kick in um, which is really exciting so uh, we have a program manager and an operations coordinator, Teresa and Joan, respectively, who um, their jobs now are, are really to make sure that they're sitting down with clients and having the meetings and administering those services directly, coordinating volunteers, recruiting and training new volunteers and making sure their schedules line up. With that off of my plate um, and with our new development communications coordinator, Layla, uh, who's starting to help take some of the bits and pieces off of how we raise the funds, get the clothing we need for the clothing bank, um, get the message out there um, with those day-to-day -day bits that have been in my on my task list um, for quite a long time with those things starting to come off I am able to pick my head up a little bit more you know I've been even when I've been working on the day-to-day -day tasks I've been thinking about the vision and where we could go because that part again it excites me that's where the potential is if we really design that path right yeah uh, but now I have a little bit more mental space and just hours in the day to sit down and look at what's out there, read best practices, talk to people like Nancy Woodland at Westside Baby, mm -hmm. who um, their executive director, who I, know, I, I consider one of a handful of mentors, Fran Yates at the food bank as well, um, Steve Daschle at Southwest Youth Family Services. They have really taken their organizations to the next level over the course of the last several years yeah. and picking their brain about how did you get your organization to this point? What did it take for, um, in, in terms of staffing, in terms of the physical space that you're in, in terms of who's on the board and what kinds of board trainings help them be more effective? Um, and what kind of trainings did you do so that you could be a more effective ED? Um, checking into those resources has become available. As a result, there are a whole lot of steps that we're now looking at in the next few years that we couldn't have fathomed a year ago. That's awesome. Yeah, um, it certainly is. Yeah. Especially by contrast. Sure. So, uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, Nancy from Westside Baby. Uh, I just interviewed her, and she was on our guest on episode twenty-five, which was last week's. Excellent. Uh, but yeah, it was great meeting her in person, kind of hearing her her story. But mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there's a lot of overlap with you know the mission and and uh, what you guys are are doing yeah. and who you're serving. Um, maybe you could take a few minutes to tell a couple 
uh, success stories, you know, about what Westside Bay has been able to do to, to help people. Um, uh, I remember one of the things that stood out during the, the gala uh, was you're talking about you're able to basically work efficiently enough and have enough funds that you that every order that came in, everyone who asked for help, you were able to help this last year, which, mm-hmm. which seems pretty amazing that you weren't they have to turn anyone away. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was that was a game changer uh, just before or when I when I started um, we were having to turn two out of three people away who were eligible simply because we didn't have the funding uh, and that's specifically on our rent and utility assistance program which um, doesn't help the highest volume of folks that we work with but it's the most robust one you know one-time impact yeah. where somebody's on the cusp of an eviction where they may be on the streets or having to try to find a friend's couch yeah. um, or find a shelter for their family and we were having to turn two out of three people away because the money wasn't there the budget was low and the demand was high we've really tuned up some of the fundraising um, through events individual uh, campaigns and um, grant funding uh, which made certainly a big difference and and so in the aggregate for the organization our biggest success story is we're not saying no um, the way that we were now in terms of individual stories, you know, I, I have probably a couple hundred in my head, and, and so picking, picking them is tough because the diversity of the stories that we hear, um, the circumstances that folks come, up, come in with are, are really tricky. Uh, one comes to mind that I think was um, particularly pertinent because it was one of the more unusual that we had, but it was also uh, a space where we were sort of one of the only organizations that was able to meet this one particular need. There was a family that had been uh, experiencing homelessness, um, a couple, two parents, two kids, and they, before they lost their home, were able to get their belongings out and get them into a low-cost storage unit at you know one of, one of the storage places in town um, so that they didn't lose all of their things. Their home was going to be uh, foreclosed on. It was, they, they had hit a handful of really difficult circumstances, some medical emergencies. Um, there was downsizing at the, at the office where um, one of the parents had work. And it all kind of hit all at once, which we see a lot. We see a lot of situations where it isn't one bad thing and it was, isn't one bad decision. It's a series of circumstances and things that all come together and just happen to hit um, simultaneously in a way that I, I really think nobody is equipped to handle. Yeah. Um, this family had gone through that. They had been in um, shelters and then they were in transitional housing and a rapid rehousing program. And they were just about, they had been approved for a new apartment. They were going to move into, they had gotten back on their feet, they were working. And what they needed was the funding to be able to pay for their storage unit because in order to move in, they had had to pay the deposit in the first month's rent, which they were able to do, but they obviously weren't sitting on a lot of savings because they had been through a lot and they had had to live on the edge for so long that they didn't have an extra $1,500, $2,000 sitting in the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the housing was critical. They paid that and then they got a notice from the um, storage company that said, you're overdue and we are going to auction off your belongings if you don't pay this much in the next five days. So we got this call, um, they were down to the last two days when we got the phone call that said, this doesn't seem like something you do, I've looked at your website, it doesn't say anything about paying bills like this, but we live here, or we're about to live here, we just found this place in West Seattle, and we just need to get our things back. Is there any chance you could make an exception and help us with this bill for our storage unit? Otherwise, we're gonna lose everything we own that we couldn't carry on our backs. And. It didn't fall within our normal parameters, so I sat down with our program staff and yeah. 
we had a conversation about it and we um, we tried to figure out you know we have to be a little careful about making exceptions to those rules yeah uh, but we also are here and looking for those opportunities to prevent the um, pretend, prevent those kind of negative circumstances before they start and somebody losing all of their belongings would really set a family back that's been struggling for a couple of years sure. with these kinds of things so we were able to call the storage unit the manager was all ready to call in the auctioneers and you know have that storage wars kind of thing where people come in and bid on the belongings right. um, and basically we had to end up driving a check out to them um, within the next two to three hours and they said the only way I'm okay with this is if I get all of it right now we're agile enough you know we're small so we're not sure. robust we're not a giant org but we're nimble and we were able to get a check approved printed cut um, and driven out there and they came and collected their belongings three weeks later right before they moved into their place and now they're living in West Seattle and um, parents are employed and kids are in school here and it's it wasn't you know they weren't going to be out on the streets again probably but asking them to find the funding for furniture for mattresses for new clothing for everyone in their family because right. it was all in storage uh, that's going to put them back on a path where they're at risk to have um, those kinds of cycles start again. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a in some ways you know that if you reduce the story down to a sentence, we paid for a storage unit so folks wouldn't lose their things. It doesn't sound that dramatic, but it's the kind of thing that a lot of places they had called five or six other organizations. They had called the mayor's office, um, and nobody knew what to do because there isn't anyone out there whose nonprofit pays for storage units that sure. are delinquent. It's pretty specific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a funny little niche. Yeah. We're able to be flexible enough because we're mostly funded, supported by the community, and we don't have a lot of big contracts with a lot of big restrictions and parameters to be there for them. And they're now okay and. You know, my hope is that they would have found a way even if we hadn't been there, but we don't know. And But we do know is they have their belongings, their kids are in school, they're doing well, and they're, they're our neighbor now. That's, that's the long story um, that is representative of a lot of little unique stories. Well, as we get ready to, to wrap up our, our time together, um, do you have maybe some uh, advice you've received in the past that's uh, been really helpful with, with what you're doing now or in helping people? Uh, let's see. I've the only reason any of this has happened and worked okay is because of tons and tons of advice. I think one of the things that uh, has certainly been a learning lesson is that you know, through graduate school, through lots of conversations with other people that work in the field, um, leaders that I like and respect, um, like Nancy and Steve we're talking about. Uh, there is a remarkable amount of advice. There's a lot of best practices. Um, you know, I was in a program that was all about nonprofit management and group dynamics and um, organizational efficiency. And what you learn once you get there is that all of the principles are great and most of the practices are different than everything you hear anywhere else. Because your org, your team, the needs that you're facing, um, and the moment-to-moment -moment way that it changes is never what the textbook says. And it's sure. never what the org chart says. Um, and I certainly had moments where, especially in the early going, you know, stepping into this role and um, as I was getting familiar, you know, everybody has imposter syndrome to some extent when they step into a new role and I certainly had some when I stepped into this role. Uh, and I've talked to my staff about this too, especially as they've taken on more responsibility for the organization. At some point, you just got to make a call and go with what you know and what your gut says. Um, think about the best practices. Think about the advice 
but at some point someone has to pick a direction or say yes or no to a thing and what I learned in my you know in the process of being thrown in the water to learn to swim as I started to work in this organization is at some point you just got to try kicking or paddling or something and you go right. uh, because you don't have enough time to make sure that everything is perfect and that you've mapped out your authorizer environment the way that experts say that you're supposed to for every organizational decision. Yeah. Um, once you get built out, you can put those systems and those um, principles into play in a more uh, explicit way. But sometimes it's just time to make a call. And um, as I'm working on getting my staff to the point where they're taking on more and more of the day-to-day -day operations and they're making more of those decisions so that, as we mentioned, you know, my role should be looking at the horizon and seeing how we get to where we're trying to be. Yeah. Uh, there are times where they'll come in and say, I wanted to check on this and I'm not sure what to do about this. Uh, and more and more I'm saying, trust your gut. You know what you're doing. You know what we're about and why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and make that decision. Uh, and even if I have an opinion and even if I've been there and I've had to make choices like that before, uh, practicing going with your best shot, um, taking the time to check in when you really are unsure, but knowing that there's never going to be certainty and there's never a right answer uh, has has made it easier for me on a day-to-day -day basis to do this work and to, and to look up and realize that I don't need to spend 20 minutes thinking about each phone call I need to make to the utility company right. to make sure I really frame my argument right for why we ought to waive those late fees yeah. or um, why that landlord needs to give me two weeks to get the check to them um, and be more flexible even though I know they're trying to pay their taxes on the property. Uh, sometimes you just have to make the call. You have to give it your best shot and trust that you're doing what you're doing for a reason. Yeah. Uh, because overanalyzing is certainly something that I am prone to. And again, that's uh, between my upbringing, that's my dad, where mm -hmm. I, I get the system's visibility, but sometimes I'm stuck in it and I think about it. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a gift as long as I can trust that, just be compassionate and, and work hard at it, make the choice. The, that's the best advice, and that's an amalgam of about 20 different people's advice as okay. I've done this. And it's also the opposite of a lot of the advice I got in graduate school and things where they sure. said, analyze and think. So, sure. um, sometimes you just got to pick a route and go. Yeah. Along the way, you know, along your journey, are there specific like defining moments that, that kind of you know, defined what you wanted to do or pivoted what you thought you wanted to do and made that, you know, that change either, you know, grad school or interning at Patty Murray's office or, you know, mm -hmm. things you saw, whatever. You could speak, speak on that a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, I, I have a handful. One, one that comes to mind that was pretty profound and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the short version because otherwise it could turn into this entire podcast, yeah. uh, is that, um, after, after I finished my undergraduate studies, I did an exchange program that was in Costa Rica um, and it was working on learning their physical and mental health systems to try to look at the way that um, their country, which has universal health care, uh, does, does wellness and looks at wellness relative to the way that the United States looks at wellness to better understand that. Part of that work involved working in a refugee community for folks from a couple of different Latin American countries where economic or political um, oppression had pushed them out of their country uh, and into um, this place called La Carpio, which is consists of cinder block houses with corrugated tin roofs. It is 
unfortunately like what you see in the ads asking you to sign up for the monthly donation or to sponsor yeah. a family. Um, and, and it was levels of desperation beyond what I'd ever been exposed to directly, um, at least in the magnitude. You know, this is a, a village that has 15,000 people in it, all living in these really dire circumstances. And I met folks there whose lives were hanging in the balance because the choice between paying for medication or paying for food for family um, were up for grabs. I mean, it, they, they were making that choice in an explicit way. We hear politicians say this all the time where, you know, this isn't just a story. We met people and they're really making these choices. Um, and I met a family that was, that was on the verge of losing members of their family, losing one of their kids because whether or not to feed all of their kids or whether or not to pay for a life-saving drug was actually a decision. And a large part of that was because while the Costa Rican system is really impressive. Their healthcare, I mean, it's, it's universal accessibility. There are some long lines for elective procedures and things, but um, it's open to everybody and the costs are essentially nothing to the people uh, of the country. But if you aren't a citizen of Costa Rica, you don't get access to that system. You don't get those benefits. Um, and you also have a very hard time getting work. A lot of the things that um, folks who are undocumented in the U.S. face, too, yeah. where they just can't get, you know, we have some really good systems and safety nets, uh, but they weren't allowed access. And by no fault of their own, they had to leave the country that they lived in, and the only place they could get to was here. And just because of the way the rules were set up, they were in a situation that I can't imagine being in a situation as a parent or as one of those kids, um, knowing that that was the reality and, and knowing that those were choices that we would have to make. That, obviously, there's a profound emotional impact, right, when you meet somebody that's in that kind of circumstance. For me, the other thing that happened is I left there and immediately my brain was racing with how do we set the system up such that this never happens to anybody? Because it isn't a decision. It isn't a, a feeling anyone should have to have. And there were 15,000 folks that had some variation on that kind of circumstance, all just trying to get basic needs met. And looking at whether it's immigration laws, whether it's access to those basic needs systems like healthcare and the social safety net, um, setting up a system where you can be employed because no matter where you live and no matter how you got there, having, getting a job, having a job, being able to you know, get the income and the resources that you need, having that fulfillment are really critical things. Yeah. Um, that really drove the what kind of work can I work in, what kind of policies can I adjust, um, or, you know, lobby for, advocate for, um, try to get in there and change. That was a really critical moment. Um, it's a little stereotypical because it's college kid goes abroad and has a meaningful life experience, right? right? You know, stop the presses. The flip side of that is though, um, seeing it up close and personal and seeing it in that personal face-to-face -face kind of way where I know that family and I've yeah. got a picture of them on the wall in my bedroom. Um, and I still talk to folks that work in that community. Um, seeing it in a face-to-face -face way while also looking at the system that was a part of solutions for access on one side but a barrier to access on the other yeah. and really thinking about this has to be addressed at the human level and it also has to be addressed at the system level um, because the human level is really unacceptable and the system level can be better. Uh, that was a pretty pivotal moment for how part of, part of why I'm here and part of why in addition to the great potential the org and the community I like why I get fired up to do this on a daily basis. Yeah, That's awesome. I mean I you kind of mentioned, you know, it's kind of the stereotypical, you know, college kid goes away, has life-changing experience. But I mean, I, yeah. I think the big difference is you're 
average kid that does that, all right, check that box off. Now I'm not going to think about that anymore because that was really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, as opposed to I'm gonna I'm gonna do something, make a difference, take this back, allow it to you know shape my worldview to be a more compassionate person, and you know try to provide more access to everyone. I mean, sure. I, I think that a lot of that has to do with you know I had I had been in fields and I had already been exposed to some things, and I was predisposed because of where I grew up and the kind of work I had done when I was younger. Yeah. Um, to like those helping fields, I was drawn to the idea that. You know, if I've got what I need, and I do, I've been really lucky and really privileged for a number of different reasons to have opportunities and to have my basic needs met, mm -hmm. you know, essentially my whole life. Um, and if I've got that, I need to be spending some time because if there are people out there that don't, and especially once you know them and you connect and you have a visceral connection to people that are experiencing those things, um, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, folks living in that sort of abject extreme poverty uh, and looking for a way out, um, whether it's people of color who are facing kinds of discrimination and bigotry and institutionalized racism that I don't experience in a direct way. In sure. Indirectly, sure, but that compares in no way to folks right. that are. If that's happening all around me and it's not affecting me negatively, but it's affecting people all around me, um, whether I know them or not, I, I think that I was sort of predisposed. I was already geared up for something to give that spark to really take that next step. I had been working on the ground floor of mental health um, services for kids before that um, and sort of in anti-bullying uh, and food justice and a couple of helping fields, but that was the, uh, the difference maker where I wanted to pick my head up and go, it's not enough just to be helping. We got to look at the bigger picture here because we're going to have to change things. At, you know, we're going to have to get at the roots of these problems because otherwise, you know, I'm going to get to the end of my days and look back and say, well, we still have all of these folks who are all suffering, all struggling. Um, and I'm still okay. And I'm not comfortable with that being the legacy. I, th I think that I appreciate the comment. I think that the more folks do connect to it, um, the more exposure they have, the more people would jump in in one way or another and sure. get involved in this kind of work. Um, I can tell you that it is, while it's tough and it involves a lot of long days and long hours, um, it's fulfilling beyond anything else I've ever worked on. Yeah. Well, how can we... Uh help our listeners to be involved, uh, take that opportunity with, with Wessel Helpline uh, as for, you know, volunteering or, or financially, whatever, what, sure. how, how can they do that? Uh, so the simplest way to get started, learn more about what we're doing is go into our website, which is www.wshelpline.org. If you just Google West Seattle Helpline, we're gonna come up as well. Uh, we're, we're in a position where, especially if you're in the West Seattle White Center neighborhoods, but really anywhere in Seattle, or if you're in one of the neighborhoods that has another helpline, the Queen Anne Helpline serves Queen Anne Magnolia. Uh, the North Helpline is up on the north side of the city and it serves Lake City and Ravenna area and a couple other areas around there too. Um, I'm a really big fan of the idea of giving and getting involved locally. Get to know the people that are in your neighborhood and find ways to be there for them and connect with them and build the community that you're in. Um, for us, that's signing up to volunteer at our clothing bank um, and helping folks who, for whom new winter coats for all their kids might be outside their budget. I mean, I don't know if you've been to REI lately and looked at the prices on new kids' coats, but oh, yeah. <laughs> um, they're outside the budget for a lot of people and not just folks who are in tough spots. Uh, whether that's coming and helping us sort clothing, get into the hands of, of kids and their families that need them. Um, come into the hotline so that you can talk to folks as they're calling in and saying, here's what I'm going through and here's what I need. How can I find it? And 
connecting them to resources. I mean, we have folks come in and do a couple hours of calls and they'll put 50 or 60 families in touch with really critical resources. Um, and I, w I don't know a lot of folks that who, who would hear about the idea of sitting on a phone for two hours as their idea of fun, but they leave feeling good about it and feeling like they have an impact on people right here in the neighborhood, because yeah. uh, they do. Uh, so getting involved that way, obviously, making sure that we have the dollars available to keep our programs running and especially for our rent utility pledge work um, chip, chipping in being becoming a monthly donor those kinds of things do have a major impact for us we average 325 dollars per household for a rent utility pledge that's 325 bucks difference between family on the streets and family safely in their house and moving on to better things mm -hmm. That's a very small number in the grand scheme of things. When you compare sure. that to their studies that say that there's anything between fifteen thousand and twenty-five thousand dollars in public costs for one person being homeless for a year, um, if we're stopping a full family from being homeless for three hundred twenty-five dollars, um, you know, signing up for a twenty, thirty-dollar monthly donation could be the difference between. Um, a family that we know right here being on the streets or having their water shut off, you know, access to fresh water in the first world becoming a question for folks in our neighborhood is silly to me. Yeah. Uh, and so that does make a huge difference. And, and we have folks who do that by coming to events, um, to the gala that you came to, the Neighbors Helping Neighbors Dinner or the Taste of West Seattle, which is our big community food fair that happens in May. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways to plug in. Um, all of them make a very tangible difference. and. You know, that money doesn't go sit in an account somewhere for a long time and, you know, just sort of sit and stew or make us feel good about the money we raise. It goes right back out the door. You know, we, we don't sit on a big cash reserve. Um, so a donation a day is, is getting right into the mix on helping folks tomorrow. So when folks do that, we love that. Otherwise, reach out to us and see how maybe we could talk about partnerships, advocating. Um, come help us bother the city council. Come help us bother yeah. the legislature. And, see what we could do in addition to helping folks on the ground. Let's change some of the patterns that, that um, cause folks to get there in the first place. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love what you're doing. Uh, hopefully some of the listeners feel inspired to, to get involved, make, make a difference, give some money, give some time. But thanks for coming in today, Chris. Really appreciate it. It was good seeing you again. And Thanks very much. Yeah. I really, really appreciate the chance to talk about it. It's obviously what I do with most of my time is talk about what we do, but um, I hope it's been fun for folks to listen to, and I hope it's been fun for you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of the Seatown Podcast. Make sure to check out our guest website, support what they're doing, and show them some love. If you liked what you heard on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. If you want to hear more episodes or find out more about the podcast, you can go to our website at seatownpodcast.com. That's S-E-A hyphen townpodcast.com. I'd also love to hear from you, the listeners, with any suggestions or feedback you may have for me or recommendations for guests to invite on the show. You can email me at christianharris at ctown.com. You can also find out more about me and other projects I'm working on by visiting ctown.com. Again, that's S-E-A hyphen town.com. Thanks for listening. Today's intro and outro music is courtesy of the Fascination Movement. You can find their albums in the iTunes store. The Seatown podcast creator and host is Christian Harris. This has been a Seatown Media production. Music